Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you, you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This chapter describes the fall, the fall of man. That is, not only the fall of Adam and Eve, but the whole human race, because representatively, we were all in Adam and Eve who experienced the first test, the first covenant, the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. We were in them. Cross-reference this passage to Romans 5, 12 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. Those passages cite as examples Adam and we being in Adam, we also fell in Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we also sinned with them, and we became guilty just as they were guilty of that transgression. This is called um, uh, federalism or the corporate nature of our sin in Adam. We, we were represented in Adam, so what Adam did, we did. In the Bible, there is both this corporate sin or this inherited sin, but there's also personal sin or actual sin. When we are able enough, uh, when we are young and able enough to sin, we commit actual sins. Both sins are true in the scriptures. Both sins hold us guilty and accountable to God. This chapter will describe the first sin and its consequences. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent... He was more crafty than any beast. More crafty, more cunning, more devious. He had the ability to act in a way that no other beast of the field was able to act. When it says beast of the field, this is a biblical or Old Testament expression describing wild animals. Sometimes the Bible will put a moral uh, connotation to the wild animals in relation to people and call them evil beasts. Evil beasts or wild beasts are 
characteristic or metaphors, the beasts are metaphors of how we as people behave in wild ways, in evil ways, contrary to that which is controlled, domesticated, able to follow the rules. That's the way the Bible describes it. Well, in this case, the serpent is more crafty than any of those wild animals. Here, when it says the serpent, there are two main ways to look at this two orthodox or uh, faithful biblical interpretations of this term, the serpent. It may mean that there was a serpent or a snake inhabited by the devil, or it may be a metaphor for the devil himself without him inhabiting a serpent or a snake. In either case, one could be orthodox and faithful to the Bible without undermining anything from the Bible. And yet there are other interpretations. For example, the serpent, in a third interpretation, would be the skeptical, liberal, unbelieving interpretation that says the serpent is just a myth. It's just a story, it's a fable, something fictitious that never happened, but presented this way because the Bible is a, a, a book of myths and fairy tales and just presented to convey some religious uh, notion or some moral truth or some moral behavior or connotations to moral behavior, something of that nature. Well, we do not believe that the Bible teaches that the serpent was a fictitious character right. or anything of that nature. That's not the case at all. To establish that, we may cross-reference some of these references right written here. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 13 is an example of how demons inhabited pigs. Right. Remember Jesus performed that miracle in which he caused the demons that were inside the human to be exercised, removed from the human, and then thrown into the pigs. It's possible, biblically, in other words, for a spirit to inhabit an animal. And then, in Numbers chapter 22, 22, 21 to 30, we have the example of Balaam and his donkey. Remember Balaam's donkey? He was riding his donkey, going and about to do something God did not want him to do. And one of the ways God rebuked Balaam was to have Balaam's donkey talk to him. He was able to make the animal talk. And this is just an example of how God has the ability to use an animal, if Satan in fact did dwell in an animal, and make the animal speak. That is something that occurs in Numbers 22. Then, for the fact that we're dealing with something that is real, it was real in the time of the Garden of Eden and is real today. We have these other passages. John 8, 44, Jesus said of his enemies, You are of your father the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. You are of your father. So spiritual descendants and enemies of Christ, these people are um, sons of the devil, according to John 8, 44. And Jesus makes reference to our passage, Genesis chapter 8, because he says he was a murderer, he brought about death, and he was a liar, he lied to Adam and Eve. So Jesus confirms the historicity of this Genesis account. As well, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3, and then 13 to 15. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 15, the Apostle Paul 
makes reference to this incident. He says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He refers to our passage, Genesis 3. He says, As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. By that one statement in that verse, he brings together Genesis 3, verse 1. He was more crafty than any beast of the field. And Genesis 3.13, when Eve admits to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That means that the Apostle Paul also believed in the historical account recorded in the book of Genesis regarding the serpent and even the existence of Adam and Eve. Verses 13 and to 15, 2 Corinthians 11:13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. The servants of Satan disguise themselves. So when Satan appeared in the garden, he may have well also disguised himself. He may have, according to this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, and even in brilliant light, even in brilliant light, because it says he disguises himself as an angel of light. He pretends to be good and on your side of your friend when he's actually your enemy and he is full of darkness and deceit. Furthermore, we have 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. 1 Timothy 2, 15, it says that the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. The woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Then, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John 3, 8. There the apostle says that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Which means that Jesus came to reverse this work or these works, the curse, the the misery, the death that that came into the world because of the devil. Then, we have in Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation 12, 9, 15, and then 20, verse 2. In these passages, the Apostle John brings together a few common names of the devil or Satan. He brings them together so that we have great clarity. We're talking about the same individual, the same master evil spirit, the same prince of all the demons. That is... Satan. Revelation 12, 9, he says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The same in verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
Furthermore, we have chapter 20 and verse 2. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Finally, Romans 16, 20 describes his outcome, his final doom, when it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That there is a day of judgment coming for the serpent, and we will participate in putting the serpent, Satan, under our feet. From all of these accounts in the scriptures, it is very clear that we're dealing with a real, dangerous, evil, malicious spirit called the devil or Satan, most commonly. And this is the one who approached Eve. And he said, verse 1, Genesis 3, 1, And he said to the woman, We note here, he approached the woman. He did not approach the man with this dialogue, but the woman. If we consult, again, 1 Timothy 2, 9-15, and 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1-4, there too the Apostle Paul describes deception and the easy or easy nature of or the, the ease with which Satan gets his way, he often approaches women to make inroads into relationships, into family, mar- marriage, family. He often approaches women to do so, which should not be new and novel idea to us if we have read our New Testaments. For the Apostle Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 6, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. We note here that this is true before the fall when Eve was perfect, and it's also true after the fall when Eve was sinful and all other women as her descendants are sinful. It's true of them both pre-fall and post-fall. Of course, men get deceived too, but we're talking about the ease with which Satan approaches women to do so. Then, he says, Indeed, has God said, Indeed, has God said, God has said already, we know from chapter 2, from chapter 2, verse 16, we know God has said. We have absolute, definite, certain clarity about what God said. Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Is that not clear? Is that not definite? Is it not absolute? We know what he's talking about. And certainly Adam, before the fall, without any sin nature, he would have known what God was talking about. It would have been absolutely clear in his mind. But what does Satan do? He says, indeed, has God said Firstly, he says, indeed. When you hear the term indeed, you expect somebody to agree with you. But I think he used this term indeed 
to disarm the woman, to think, actually, I'm on your side, I agree with you, but then he slips in something else. He throws in a question. Not only does he throw in a question, we'll see he throws in more. But this is the first thing he does. He disarms the woman indeed. I'm with you. However, he says, has God said? That should not be a question. God did say. Satan did know. Eve did know. They all knew. Everybody who needed to know knew what God had said. But he throws a question there. Now, this is a malicious question, right? There are authentic questions, a sincere desire to learn and to grow. But then there are malicious questions, those questions that are seeking not to get an answer, a truthful answer or evidence, anything that's going to help the person in his logic or in his uh, predicament, nothing like that, but intended to skew the issue, to trip up the one questioned, or to excuse the sin of the questioner. That's what Satan does here. You sh- then, then what does he say? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice, immediately he makes God out to be a miser. Somebody who's stingy. Somebody who created, but he does not provide for his creation. He's holding back. He's not helping. He's not assisting. He does not give what he ought to give as our creator. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God never said anything absolute like that. We know he, in fact, said the opposite. You may eat freely or generously, abundantly, from any tree. He said the opposite and then made one exception. But Satan makes God out to be evil, not good. Unloving when he is loving. Ungracious when he is actually gracious. Unprovidential when actually he is providential. He provides for his own. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. The woman said to the serpent, Now, I take the view that Adam was there with her. And I take that view because of verse 6. It says, She gave also to her husband with her. Why would Moses tell us by the Holy Spirit that her husband was with her if he was not with her? In proximity and, and in earshot of this conversation. He must have been there. He must have been with her. He must have. And so, in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, Why did the woman speak up when the man should have spoken up at least by that point? Why did he not speak up? Why did she speak up? Remember, from Genesis 3, 15 to 17, we have said that Adam was created to be a provider to cultivate, a protector to keep or to guard, and then a teacher or a pastor to teach the Word of God to his wife and family from verses 16 and 17. And in this regard, Adam is not protecting. He's not protecting and he's not pastoring. And he's not even being a good provider because 
The serpent wants to provide food for Adam and Eve in a wrong way, and Adam knew the right way to have the provisions of the family met. So now he is breaking all three by his silence because he's there with her. Verse 2 continues with Eve's answer. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. She did not say from any of the trees of the garden. She also diminished the goodness of God by her answer. She also did not say we may eat freely, generously, abundantly. She didn't say anything like that. She also there mitigated and diminished the goodness of God in her answer. She's already conceding to the serpent in her answer. Verse 3, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. Well, what's the name of that tree? And why do you suppose she did not give the name of that tree in her answer? What's the name of it? We know the name of it from 2 verse 9 and 2 17. 2 9 tells us that in the midst of the garden, it says, and the tree of life, uh, excuse me, the, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, verse 9, and then verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God gave it a name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve did not give it a name. She just said where its location was. That's all she mentioned. Now, why do people not give the true names of things? Why do people invent names? Why do people distract uh, and uh, euphemize or, or come up with better-sounding, good-sounding words instead of calling something what it should be? They do so in order to alleviate the gravity of what they are about to do or what they have done. They do so in order to alleviate or palliate their guilt from what they do. That's why they don't give it the name. And in this case, if she had said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then she would have been more reminded of the fact that God said no, and that it would have been evil to partake of it. Because the moment she says the word evil, it would have been another help for her to understand it would have been evil to partake of it. But she avoids those words in order to say, that tree, the tree in the middle of the garden, that one over there. Further, she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, did God say not to touch it? No. He did not say that it should not be touched. She added to the word. So far, we've been mentioning how she has subtracted from the word. She has subtracted from the word. She has taken away from the word the exact words that God spoke. Now she has added to it by saying, or touch it. This is why Moses, in the law of Moses, such as in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32, he warns the people when they receive the inscripturated word of God, do not add to it and do not take away from it. Do not add to it and do not take away from it. Because this is the common sin. That happens when sin occurs, that we either add to God's word or we subtract from it in order to justify our actions. But that's not what he said. 
Then in verse 3, Genesis 3, 3, lest you die, or else you'll die, she says, or else you'll die. This is another example of how she removed something from the Bible. Notice 2.17 says, you shall surely die. God spoke with clarity and definiteness. You shall surely die. Certainly that will happen. But she mitigated that too by just saying, lest you die, or else you'll die. Now, that is true. It's a partial truth. They, they would have died, but God didn't say it that way. He said it in a way that would have heightened the severity, heightened the acknowledgement of the penalty of their disobedience. That's the way he said it. Verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. The serpent is still talking to the woman. Problem, right? That continues. Then he says, You surely shall not die. To this point, he has been dancing with the Word of God. He's been using deception. He's been using a cloak to get his way here or there, nudging and fudging here or there with the woman. But now, he diametrically opposes it. Now, he is brazen enough, because he's made inroads enough, now he undermines it from the root up. He says, you, shall, you surely shall not die. The Word God said... Above, in 2.17, you shall surely die. He says, you surely shall not die. He directly contradicts the word of God in the face of the woman. This is the way that Satan behaves. He comes in sneakily. He comes in like that. But ultimately, even though he presents himself as being agreeable, he's going to eventually be directly against God. He will show himself to be that way. Not only that, but he's going to directly, in verse 5, directly contradict God or contradict the goodness of God by mentioning God. Notice verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows what's going to happen and God is withholding something from you. He's withholding this fact that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This aspect of their knowledge, this aspect of their knowledge and experience, their awareness, their awareness of guilt and the awareness of them being naked, all of these things they have not had yet. They don't know it. They have not experienced it yet. They don't know what God knows. They, God has omniscient knowledge, that is, knowledge of all things, past, present, future. He does not learn anything. But in their case, they did not know. Remember, when they were created on day six, they were naked and were not ashamed, Genesis 2.25 says. They both were. Just like the innocence of little children, when they are naked, they don't know any differently, and they have no shame. And they shouldn't have any shame. And nobody who sees them like their parents or even siblings, they don't look at that as shame when they are very tiny. They don't look at that as shame. And that's the kind of innocence they had. But they were about to change. And the serpent says, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. 
your eyes will be opened. He does not mean their physical eyes because obviously they can see the serpent and they can see the tree and they can see the fruit of the tree. And verse 6 will explain that she saw. But he means spiritually speaking. To have their spiritual eyes opened and their understanding uh, elevated or extended, not elevated in a good sense, but uh, enlarged in a way that they had not known before. This is the temptation he presents to, to them. To get spiritual knowledge from a foreign source, from an alien source. This is the beginning of occultism, beginning of superstition and occultism. Uh, speaking to the dead, uh, look, gazing into a crystal ball, consulting the stars, so on and so forth. These are various ways to consult spiritual realities that God has forbidden. And Satan says, God has withheld this from you, but your eyes are going to be open. It's going to be a whole new different world for you, and it'll be exciting and new and good for you. That's what you need. And God knows you'll be like him. Not completely like him, but taking steps to be like him. Satan knew that it would not happen, that Eve would be exactly like God, just like he is not exactly like God. That's impossible. Satan knew that because God is eternal and all of his creation is finite. But we can take steps in that direction, and Satan knew that, and that's what he tempted here with Eve and Adam. Well, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. We have three aspects to her sin. Three aspects to her sin. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. It would be good for her personally. It would benefit her physically. She saw that it was good for, for food. Then it was a delight to the eyes. It pleased her. It was beautiful. It was, it was uh, uh, f full of um, uh, juiciness. It would have been very appealing in that way. Then it says, desirable to make one wise. And if I just do it, I will have this wisdom that was just announced in verse 5. Knowing good and evil. If I just do it, then I'll be better. It'll be better for me. And I'll be wiser if I do this deed. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle alludes to this in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle John is referring back to Genesis 3, verse 6. And the sequence is the lust of the flesh, remember, desirable for food. Then it says the lust of the eyes, that it was good, it was beautiful to see. And then boastful pride of life would equate to her 
being wise, desirable to make one wise. And in, he, uh, in Genesis 3, verse 6, where, when it says, desirable to make one wise, that is akin to this term in 1 John, lust. Lust. Lust is a strong evil desire. It's an evil desire, and he says that it is lust of flesh, lust of eyes, lust of life, pride of life. And then he summarizes, verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts. Those are the three full uh, ways in which sin entices us by those three means. Furthermore, James, in James 1.13, in James 1.13 to 15, James 1.13 to 15, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. God is not the tempter. The agent of temptation is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The first one was the devil in Genesis chapter 3. He was the agent of temptation. Then, verse 14 James 1.14 says, When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, that's how temptation comes about. He is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Using the birth process from conception to birth to bringing forth, brings, uh, gives birth to sin and it brings forth death. These, this is the sequence of events. Lust, sin, and death. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. Well, verse 7, back to Genesis 3, verse 7. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 6. Verse 6, at the end of it, it also says, She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Why... If he was such a, a burly and tough man, why did he not say no? Why did he not put a stop to it? He didn't put a stop to it in the conversation, but now he could have put a stop to it in the action. Right. Why didn't he stop it? He could have said, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But he did not. He went along with his wife, and he's also complicit in sin. And as I said before, the text does say to her husband with her, so he must have been there with her. Why would he, after they were created, why would he, assuming all of this is happening on day six of creation, why is it that he would abscond and depart from Eve when she was just created and brought to her, uh, to him? And then Satan fell and immediately came into their presence to cause them to fall. Why would he go to another part of the garden? Well, what would he go and do? He just said, this is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He's excited that he has a suitable partner. Rightfully so. Well, why would he leave that suitable partner and go look at birds and bees on the other side or something? No. He would be right there with her. That's what the text says. To her husband, with her, and he ate. If he wasn't with her... 
then why does it say with her? He was with her. It didn't say he came to her after it and therefore he was with her. Nothing like that. He was there with her. And he did not act accordingly in the right way. Verse 7 now. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They ate of this, their eyes were opened, and they realized their guilt, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. Well, when it says their eyes were opened, remember we have already said this does not mean that they had their physical eyes closed. It's talking about their spiritual and moral eyes. Their spiritual and moral eyes were opened. We have an example, or a couple of examples of this, of spiritual eyes being opened. In 2 Kings, in 2 Kings, Elisha the prophet is being surrounded by an army, and the army is going to threaten him. In 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 19. 15 to 19. This army is about to surround or is surrounding Elisha and his servant. Elisha is not worried about it. But his servant is worried about it and is fearful. And he says in verse 15, And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God had raised up angelic armies around Elisha to protect him from the enemy army. He did so. The servant didn't see it. Elisha saw it. And then Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant to see it also. And he did. The servant saw it. Furthermore, we have an example in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Remember, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples are walking and Jesus encounters them. They dialogue and Jesus teaches them about himself from the Old Testament and how he fulfilled everything from the Old Testament. But they were intrigued and they were amazed about about what he was teaching them. But they didn't know that he was the Lord Jesus himself. The two did not know that. But then they sit down to eat. And once they eat the bread, it says in verse 31, he broke the bread, he gave it to them. And then it says in verse 31, Luke 24, 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They have now come to a full restoration in terms of knowing. They heard these words of God, but they didn't actually come to full faith in those words of God until their eyes were opened to recognize Christ. And then they later say, was not, were not our hearts burning when he was explaining the scriptures to us? We knew that there was something going on, something right about this, but we just couldn't put it together until their eyes were open. So they saw spiritually 
and physically that Jesus was the Christ. And since we're in Luke 24, another example is verse 45 when it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, in the negative sense, their eyes were opened in Genesis 3, but in a positive sense, their eyes and minds were opened in Luke 24. This is what happens. They knew what they did. They had a sense of guilt. They knew that they were naked. Nakedness and guilt now go together. This is what God ordained to happen when they partook of that tree and failed this test. When they partook, they knew they were naked, and now they have shame and, and guilt. In verse chapter 224, it says they were not ashamed. Now they have shame. And now that they have shame, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They put this covering on themselves to keep their shame away from God and others. It's just the two of them, but they have this immense guilt that they sew fig leaves together to cover their shame. How could that be? That they could imagine that they could sin without the knowledge of God and then cover their shame with these fig leaves without the knowledge of God, that God would not know what happened, and that they were shameful, and they felt shame. How could they imagine that? But that's what we all do. When sin happens to us, what is it that we do? We end up denying at least three, if not more, basic characteristics. Let's say five basic characteristics of God. We end up denying His omniscience. We end up denying His omnipotence we end up denying His omnipresence. As well, we end up denying His love, and we end up denying His justice. These are the five major attributes of God that we deny whenever we sin. And that's what they did. And it's so foolish because they sewed these fig leaves together and made themselves these loin coverings. And notice in anticipation, verse 21, God, after He confronts them, he puts uh, garments of skin on them. They put fig leaves on themselves, but God put garments of skin on them for a reason. He put a better covering over them than the covering, the measly and weak, uh, weak cover, covering that they could provide for themselves. Now the confrontation, verses 8 to 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The cool of the day is likely uh, late in the afternoon and early in the evening, before it's dark. That would be the cool of the day. And when it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, this must mean that he came in some kind of powerful and ominous, frightening way. He did not come with a gentle spirit, with a gentle voice. He came like he did at Sinai, most likely. He came like that when on Mount Sinai there was thunder and lightning, there, there was earthquake and it made the people fear and tremble, and this is what they do. They hid themselves. God's approaching and they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Now, it says God walked. God walked in the garden. If we are to take this literally, which I think we should, that God walked in the garden, then how could this be but for a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or Christophany, appearance of Christ before his incarnation in the Old Testament. There is biblical evidence that he appeared to many individuals in the Old Testament before his actual incarnation. He temporarily assumed a physical form or some kind of visible form in order to manifest his word and will to the people. He did so, I believe, here in Genesis 3, verse 8. Some cross-references to consult on this. The, the uh, most important one is John chapter 1, verse 18. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John says, no one has seen God at any time. If no one has seen God at any time, that means that nobody has seen God at any time. Yeah. Right? Any time. That is, before Christ's incarnation, during his incarnation, or after his incarnation, no one has seen God at any time. So if no one has seen God at any time, then who was seen in the Old Testament, such as Genesis 3, verse 8, or to Abraham, to David, to uh, Moses, who was seen? It must have been Christ, because that's what John 1.18 says. The only begotten God, or the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, the Son, has explained Him, the Father. The Son explains the Father. The Son interprets the Father. That's what John 1.18 says. And the, for the fact that nobody can see God, John 4.24 says, God is spirit. Spirit is invisible, intangible. You cannot see spirits unless a spirit chooses in some miraculous way to manifest himself by glory or human form, something of that nature. Then the spirit can be seen. Otherwise, the spirit is invisible. Jesus said in Luke 24, 36 to 39, Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Just as the wind and the breath, do not, uh, we, we do not see them with our eyes. In the same way, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. And that's the way God the Father is. And we know that's the way the Holy Spirit is. And that's even the way the Son of God was before his incarnation. As deity, the Son of God is invisible. He possesses a divine nature. But as humanity, he has a human nature without sin. Jesus was invisible and is invisible as God, but he is visible as a man. This is who appeared in Genesis 3.8. Jesus appeared here in the garden to Adam and Eve to announce judgment. Uh, moreover, we need to note in verse 8 it says, in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day. On what day did the fall occur? On what day did the fall occur? If we uh, were to consider some of the biblical evidence for this, we should note that in Chapter 3, verse 8, when it says, in the cool of the day, why does it say the day 
when it may be that it's referring to the sixth day, the day in which they were created is the day in which they fell. So it's referring to the same day, the day, that day. Um, another thing we need to consider is that Adam and Eve, if they had procreated and they were commanded to, right, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Genesis 1:28. If they had procreated for a day, a week, a month, a year, inevitably they would have had children. There was no sin in the world, so there would have been no infertility, right? No sin in the world, no infertility. So she would have conceived the first time they had sexual relations. So if they had copulated for the first time and she had conceived, then their child would not have a sin nature. And that would be impossible. Because in the Bible, it is impossible for any of the descendants of Adam and Eve not to have a sin nature. Moral depravity. Original sin. Inherited sin. Inherited sin and guilt. Inherited condemnation. Various ways that we could describe this truth. So, it had to be that they fell on the sixth day. And there are other reasons that we may also present, but those are a couple to think of to get your mind moving on this matter. But if you wanted to study this furthermore, there is a book called The, the Marrow of Modern Divinity. The Marrow of Modern Divinity by two authors, two Puritan authors, um, Fisher and Boston. Fisher and Boston. And you can easily find their work, and it's free on the internet, a PDF of their work. They list several reasons why the fall happened on the sixth day. And they also note that the Greek church fathers in the early church, they generally universally believed in the same thing, that the fall happened on the sixth day. This is important as it, as it relates not only to the entrance of sin and death in the world, but also in relation to the doctrine of creation, creationism. If we believe that the earth is four and a half billion years old and that men or humans have been on the earth for, say, 50,000 to 100,000 years, or even j just to say 25,000 years ago, then you have to believe that there was death in the world, decay, misery, chaos, destruction, earthquakes, tornadoes, all kinds of things that bring destruction and misery to the world. And yet in the Bible, there is no room for that. There's no place for that because it did not happen. And so the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the fall, they go hand in hand. You cannot compromise either of them because if you compromise either of them, you're going to jeopardize the gospel. Now you may say, how is the gospel jeopardized? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For by a man came death, so also by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. There, the Apostle Paul connects the entrance of sin and death with the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ and the redemption that's in Christ, to be made alive in Him. So yes, they are all bound together. Creation, fall, redemption cannot be compromised. They must be understood correctly, and we can only do that biblically. Not from so-called historians, 
who contradict the Bible, not from any so-called uh, scientists who contradict the Bible, not from any philosophers and anthropologists and sociologists, any other field of knowledge that would undermine the truthfulness of the Bible. We accept the Bible and we reject anything that contradicts the Bible. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Right. Therefore, I consider right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. That is the assumption we should have. God's word is true, and anything that undermines it, contradicts it, mitigates it, is wrong and false and must be rejected. Next, verse 9. Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Observe in verse 9 that God called to the man. The woman was the one who was in dialogue with the serpent, and the woman was the one who gave to the man, but God called the man. He called the man first and said to him, Where are you? When it says, Where are you? God is not ignorant. He is merely using human expressions, anthropomorphic terms, in order to bring out some truth or to bring out some reality. He is also like a judge, a judge who knows and has some idea of the circumstance on the trial, in the trial with the criminal, right? He has some idea, but he asks the question in order to bring out the facts onto the table so that the criminal can express himself or the criminal's lawyer express himself to see what exactly the issues are. And that's what God does here. He knows very well. He's omniscient. He did not need anything to be revealed to him. And we have a parallel to this in Genesis 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, when God asks him, Where is Abel? God knew. Because when Cain refused to answer and express his ignorance. You see, God was not ignorant, and neither was Cain. But Cain pretended ignorance. I don't know. Cain knew his blood, he was in the ground, or his blood was on the ground. And when Cain refused to answer, God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So God answered his own question. Sure. Because Cain refused to answer. So this is what God does throughout the Bible. Many times this happens. God will ask a question in order to bring the facts onto the table or even to let the criminal indict himself, which is the case with Cain and also now with Adam. Verse 10, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked. God came to him in judgment, and it says here, I was afraid because I was naked. I knew I was guilty, I was naked. I now have this knowledge, this awareness that I did not have before, and so I was afraid of you. That's why he hid himself. But even then, is this not a foolish answer? Wasn't God going to find him out anyways? Isn't this what Moses said? Be sure your sin will find you out. Yeah, yeah. Remember, Moses said that? So God was going to find him anyway, so what's the point of hiding? What he should have done was to confess his sin, confess and forsake immediately, not wait for a confrontation, but to confess and forsake immediately. Then verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
This is similar to verse 9. God knows, but he is interrogating him. Who told you that you were naked? How did this come about? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It was a commandment that he transgressed. Verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Now he deflects. The man, instead of confessing at this point, he deflects to the woman. He says, the woman whom you gave. So the human agent is to blame, and the divine agent is to blame. God is to blame. Remember what James said in James 1.13? Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why would James say that? Because ultimately, we find a way to wiggle here and there and then to rise up to heaven and shake our fists and gnash our teeth at God himself. That's the way sin works. That's the way people are. They'll take their sin and then shift it onto a human agent and then to God himself instead of receiving and admitting their own guilt. Verse... 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. He says to the woman, What have you done? This is similar to verse 9, 9 and 11. God knows, but he just wants the, the, the woman to answer. And she says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She admits the truth here. But still, it's not a confession. It's not a full confession. Because she admits the truth that that the serpent deceived me. But the question is, why did that happen in the first place? Why did you dialogue with him? Why did you succumb to him? Why did you do it? Why did you not only dialogue, but why did you uh, perform the uh, pernicious deed of eating it? Why did you do this? And why did you not defer to your husband? If you weren't going to answer... Let your husband deal with it and let him answer. None of this is happening, and there's no straightforward confession. She's also, in a way, shifting it to the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then lastly, when when she says the serpent deceived me, this is the nature of the devil. We already said from John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And in 1 Timothy 2.14, it was the woman who was quite deceived. 2 Corinthians 11.3, just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Deception is the mode of operation of the devil. The the devil is a devil of deceit. This is the way he works. This is the way he trips up people and entraps them to sin. So we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard because deception is around the corner and we should not be disarmed. We should not be twiddling our thumbs. We should not be sleeping. We should not be getting drunk in the middle of the night and all kinds of things like that that we do to disarm ourselves and to be uh, daisy and to be dopey in the way that we behave so that we're easily deceived. No, we have to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to withstand all the fiery darts of the evil one. That's how we should be. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.